0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to Safety Last
1: with Geo. Do you prefer Geo or Giorgio? Definitely, definitely Geo. No matter how many, no matter how many times you ask me, the answer is not going to change, man. <laughs> do you, Do you prefer Do you prefer it if I actually called you Geo in
0: real life? Like, I feel like that would just change our dynamic.
1: No, no, you you definitely shouldn't do that. You should keep calling me Giorgio in real life. <laughs> um, <laughs> if you if you change names now, man, I I don't know how I'd react to it. I wouldn't be able to to adapt.
0: You know, actually, level talk, change.
1: talking about weird
0: changes, I thought just like, just to like mess of you for my manuscript, and you're one of the few people, uh, if not the only person apart from my editor, who's actually read or heard my story in full, the mm. narrative that I'm writing, I thought like, the last time I show it to you, if I ever show it to you before it gets published, which is, you know, mm. in a few months, it should be out. I thought of just changing the main character's name to something like like Jonah or something <laughs> and <laughs> sending it to you and but be you a power move. I kind of, I
1: kind of wish you didn't tell me you just did it. <laughs> I could just get mind blown. <laughs> that would have been Awesome. How have you been doing man in lockdown? Yeah, man, I'm doing pretty good. As good as anyone can do in lockdown, you know, uh, mm-hmm. we're all, you know, sort of freedoms have been, uh, curtailed, curtailed. Ooh, I like that. It's a good word. Yeah. But, uh, you know, making the most of it, doing, do what I want to do. Mm. Well, uh, this is something that
0: I've wanted to do with you for a while. And we've actually spoke about this for like a month and a half. And we have finally had the opportunity to sit down and make this happen. And that is talk about symbolism, especially through Tarot's correct. Mm-mm. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. So this is something that you have been getting into over the last few years. No. Is that correct? few years, few months? It's been over a year.
1: I want to say it's it's over a year, not over two. I want to say like a year and a half now. Mm. And what got you into this? Because
0: if you think about the normal stereotype, the normal image we think of when we think of uh, tarot cards, Eastern European, old woman, bandana around her head, lives in a caravan, crystal ball. You have none of that.
1: That's true. That's true. I'm really, I'm really not living up to the, the expectations. You're actually complete opposite of that, to be honest. So where? A bit of an outcast in the interest... tarot community because of that. You know, <laughs> <laughs> people uh, people spit upon me when when I enter their tents.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so where did this interest in tarot cards come from?
1: Oh man, you know it's uh, interesting. I, I got into it from like, I think the way I get into a lot of things, and that's through Carl Jung. Um, I'm a huge fan of Jungian. Uh, psychology um, which we might go into for as much as is necessary for the for the sake of the viewers later on once I sort of like I guess becomes relevant to explaining it but I guess like I sort of saw these tarot cards as like a way to engage with the symbolic way that humans make meaning Mm -hmm. so I saw these cards as sort of like an avenue to pursue communication with symbols similar to like dream reading like when you know you interpret dreams the dreams speak to people in a language that is completely, um, I guess, foreign to our waking language, you know, mm-hmm. dreams communicate in abstract symbols and images, and that's the nature of our unconscious mind. Mm-hmm. While tarot cards, I suppose, are a way that you can engage with that sort of communication in your waking life. And I guess what drew me to it initially is like, you know, first of all, you know, that's a very fancy way of, uh, preambling just, a I thought it'd be fun. (laughs) It'll be interesting to see what's (laughs) going on with it. Um, The pictures are pretty cool. But at the same time, like... The pictures are cool. Oh, dude, the art is great, man. Is there like a a standard universal...
0: um, universally accepted tarot card design?
1: Nah, they're all pretty... um, They're all pretty idiosyncratic, but the most popular one is the one designed by... um, Arthur Rider-Waite. And that would have been in... Let's see. Let me just look this up. Actually, better yet, cut up the part of me looking up so it looks like I know what I'm doing. <laughs> just to create the illusion. Um, let's see. You know I'm going to leave this in. 1909. <laughs> 1909. So, yeah, the tarot cards has been around for even longer than that. Like, they've actually been around. They came to Europe from, like, Egypt in the, in the Middle Ages, I believe. Um, but they sort of didn't start getting used for divination purposes until the 18th century. And divination meaning just to sort of, like, either see into the future or see some kind of divine wisdom something that sort of is beyond the scope of what you can see in normal reality and do you think tarot cards
0: have any difference in compared to other forms of like psychic readings uh for example there's one that i've heard about a few times i don't know what culture this comes from but you cut the ins you cut a pigeon and you let the insides fall out it's quite gruesome and then you look at the bird insides or the the guts and then you come to a conclusion through that so i guess my question is are tarot, tarot cards tarot guts, tarot cards particularly different in comparison to that
1: i mean yeah there's definitely no like you know sort of gore or mutilation involved so mm-hmm. <laughs> apart from gore and the mutilation it
0: is the idea of just seeing something symbolic in an everyday action in everyday object is that similar between both
1: i mean yeah look i i think there's like a million different ways you can do i guess oracle practice or divinatory practice and having said that like it doesn't really you know i, I just happen to think tarot cards are really neat because the fact that they're so visual and the images in the tarot cards have this sort of i don't know deep archetypal resonance like you know there's sort of these sort of age-old mythological characters that appear time and time again mm-hmm. over the years
0: uh, you mean things like, for example, the knight represents courage or uh, the wizard represents wisdom or like a burning tower represents, you know, danger or opportunity. That's what you mean by archetypes, right?
1: Yeah. So, yeah, these yeah these sort of symbols that occur in uh, stories time and time again. And I guess to bring back around the whole Jungian thing, Carl Jung I was talking about earlier, um, his psychological theories are that basically human beings are – well, just one of his theories is that human beings sort of, we process the world and we understand the world and meaning through our unconscious, you know, symbols, meaning that, I guess think about the popularity of things like Netflix, why people are watching TV movies, playing games or just engaging with storytelling in one way or the other all the time, because we tell ourselves stories. We understand the world through stories as a, as a way of understanding our own lives. Like, I, you know, we sort of create the story of our own lives. You ask them to describe, what their life is, and they have to tell a story by definition. We process memories of stories. Um, I think stories are sort of like fundamental to the grammar of how we conceptualize ourselves in reality. I completely agree with that. And that's actually one of my history activities
0: I do. I get people to recount uh, a certain morning. So if it's like period one, I say, okay, recount everything you did before you came to this lesson. And then inevitably, so I give them a timeline and they fill it in and then inevitably they leave things out. And then my next question is, so why did you leave those things out? And then we come to the conclusion, we always come to the conclusion as a class that it's because the person has deemed certain things important. For example, I ate hash browns in the morning. That's important to me. And they left out how many times they flossed their teeth or something. So they leave in what's important and they exclude what is not important and that itself is subjective meaning you have turned history or the passing of events into a story so mm. I think even history is a story right what do you put in the history what do you leave out of the history so I completely agree with what you're saying the importance of story and narratives in shaping society in our lives
1: oh man totally um, and that's actually that's actually like a great yeah, that, that aspect that you have sort of touched on there that we have to include and exclude details is really interesting because let's say you do see something like a burning tower, which is, you know, one of the tarot cards, right? The tower is like a tower that's been struck by lightning and uh, there's people falling out of it and the tower's on fire and it's, you know, in an unstable state about to collapse. Um, you look at that tower for long enough and, you know, you're trying to make up a story about your life where you see the tower, you'll come up with something. You will project your situation onto it, which is this is kind of something else that might separate uh, separate me from, you know, the bandana wearing old lady uh, crowd of the tarot of the tarot community. And many at large, I might have to sort of protect myself, change my name and identity after this <laughs> podcast. But uh, I, look, I don't actually believe uh, the telling from the future is necessarily or, or rather the tarot cards ability to sort of predict the future is something that is inherent to them. But I think that it's more so projection is a useful mechanism to understand the meaning making and the stories we do tell. Because it's in a lot of ways, I think, yeah, to go back to your previous question about why Tarot, rather than, you know, sort of like reading the entrails of a goat or uh scrying the surface of a wall of you know, a lake of water or a crystal ball or what have you, I um I think the thing about Tarot is that. One, it's got the archetypal symbols that we talked about. And then two, it's just a really interesting place that anyone can project onto. Um, I I think that the other things are more oracle-centered or mystic-centered. So, you know, if if you gave me a crystal ball, someone has never been into crystal ball reading, I probably wouldn't be able to sort of see anything significant on the ball. Um, But the beauty of tarot cards is that you can do a reading that actually involves the storytelling of the person getting a read done for them. Mm -hmm. So, you know, like when I, when I approach tarot reads, it's not just like, okay, I'm going to look at these pictures and I've got the magical powers. I'm going to tell you your future because, you know, I know what's going on. It's like, nah, I I want you to tell me a story. I want you to look at these pictures, tell me what they mean to you without trying to make something up, without trying to think about what the right answer is. Just sort of like running off the cuff here. What's the, uh, what's the natural story that you project onto it? And then there's just depth and breadth of meaning in that alone. And just touching
0: back on what you said about archetypes and the tower being struck mm. by lightning. Um, so you were saying that archetypes are symbols which often occurs throughout art or throughout understanding or society to the point where it becomes ingrained. It becomes an ingrained common understanding amongst people and that's yeah. when it becomes an archetype. And for just the audience out there, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, Gio, but you are thinking that the Struck Tower is basically the Tower of Babylon from the Bible. And this idea of climbing to heights, almost similar to the story of Icarus, the person who flew too close to the sun with the wax wings and then eventually falling down to the earth, this idea of climbing too high with hubris and eventually being struck down because of that hubris. That is what you mean by the archetype of the Struck Tower. Is, is that correct?
1: Well, yeah, th- I guess those are, those are stories... Those are stories that manifest the archetypes um, and perhaps even sort of helped co-create the archetypes. Like from mythology, I guess, Icarus, and then also from the Bible, we have, like you said, uh, the Tower of Babel. Um, Wait, is which... it Babel or Babylon? Babel.
0: Uh-huh.
1: Um, that's why we have the English word Babel. When people are babbling, they're speaking incoherently because, you know, after God struck down the Tower of Babel, he um, also he didn't strike it down. He, he cursed all the people building it to be unable to, so to speak different languages. And they ah, were unable to communicate, and then the tower broke down due to like lack of cohesion. Wow, and lack of unity. The
0: symbolism them. in that.
1: Oh yeah, that's that's a rich one. We could we could do a whole podcast about that, but that's uh-huh. that's a whole other thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, yeah, Tower of Tower of Babel, right? Babbling. Even our English language reflects this. The tower itself is like a, you know we see a rickety tower falling down, and we inherently, even if you don't know that story the fact that these are the kind of stories that have existed for like thousands of years and sort of have not only informed our ancestors, but culture and, you know, sort of like, I don't know, been cross pollinated as well through mythology, like, like as well, like there's probably also, you know, modern stories of of other ideas of like tower falling and um, you know, people being struck down for hubris, like Icarus, like these kind of ideas are just eternal and whether or not we have the same values about them that the ancients did, there's something about those ancient stories that sort of, you know, show us our symbolic inheritance, so to speak. They show us the culture in which we've built our culture upon.
0: But that would also mean that other cultures who are not that close to what Carl Jung was writing about, like, for example, Chinese culture, I don't really see this idea of the tower being struck down. Does that mean people from an Eastern, uh, East Asian or like an African, or just a completely different cultural inheritance, they might look at the tower being struck down and have a completely different reaction to that. Is that fair?
1: Yeah, they totally, they totally might. Like, it's, it's entirely possible, because like, the tower isn't inherently this thing that humanity discovered. But it's, it's this thing that has been inherited. And like, you know, I guess you could say it exists in a place called the because we said it's, this is the unconscious of the individual, this is also the unconscious of all the people or like groups of people, which is called the, the collective unconscious. Mm. And in that, you know, the collective unconscious isn't necessarily, you know, the internet between all humanity. It's kind of like it, it exists to varying degrees. So, you know, there's a, there's a huge split in the Eastern and Western world and there's even more splits between different countries and cultures and how sort of cultures and symbols have diverged. So it's entirely possible. And, and you know what? That's part of the reason why I don't like... Mystic-centered readings. There needs to be a level of like willfulness of the uh, of the participant, the person being read, um, to sort of want to actually, you know, have a go with it and want to tell a story there. Because otherwise, you know, you know, it, it can be useful to use one's own intuition and one's own, I guess, just knack for putting things together. But I, I, I kind of see my role if I am doing a reading with someone else, um, is to. Just sort of help them understand what the cards mean to them, not to give them the answer of what I think the cards mean for them.
0: Yo, you know what this reminds me of? Um, mm. I'm going to play guess what's in the teacher's head, but... Ooh, okay. Um, okay. Everything you just said, I totally agree with, but see if you can get this person's name. You probably can. Um, he was a French postmodernist who wrote about subjectivity. That's hmm. that's a lot, actually. I that's, feel like a, that. <laughs> that's, a, that's a lot of French
1: postmodernism. Man.
0: <laughs> okay, he wrote something. Um, it's a really famous manuscript, and, and it talks about subjectivity within narrative, especially. Oh man! Do you know who I'm talking about? Like his his name starts with R, and his last name is B. Starts with B. Wait a second. Oh, you're going to kick yourself, man. I'm going to tell you the answer and you are going to kick yourself. All right, go for it. Roland Barthes. Wait a second. He's French. Isn't he French?
1: I don't know. Is he? he? I don't know. I just, (laughs) you know what? I have no clue. In my mind, Roland Barthes, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of Sartre. I'm thinking of Camus, but like, yeah, I don't know.
0: Is he French? Okay, let's search this up right now. He is French.
1: Damn. There you go. Yeah. Right on, you know, good flex there. We're going to end this podcast right here. <laughs> Let's go. <home>. <laughs> <laughs> Stanley
0: wins. You know, game over. You know uh, Roland Barthes he wrote that the birth of the reader needs to come at the death of the author.
1: Mm. That was one of the mm.
0: best quotes, one of my favorite quotes in his basically game-changing manu- uh, essay, which is the death of the author. And everything you said about the subjectivity and that there is no objective that all seems to tie in with Roland Barthes' ideas.
1: Yeah, it's 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 interesting. Like I, I think that it's funny that you've chosen a literary critic, uh, critic because, like, I actually think about it quite literarily. You know, as you and I are both English teachers, I'm sure we don't need to uh, have much debate about. The power of like universal themes and stories reflecting individual experiences. That's why we we shove Shakespeare down kids' throats. Yeah, that's, that's fair to say.
0: <laughs> I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry, kids. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but yeah, like I guess that's the thing. Like not to well, that that's a sidetrack as well. But right. I, I guess even if we if we think about why it's great, it's not really trying to understand. I guess part of it is appreciating Shakespeare's literary greatness and also what Shakespeare was saying as well. But I think even just having like a personal experience with a story is a really important part of like how we actually engage with stories and how stories are meaningful for us. So in that sense, let's take the story going on in our heads, the story that we use to sort of understand reality our inner monologue, whether or not we can hear any of it or not, you know, by using, I guess, the inner monologue or that, that natural component of story making. Um, you know, the fact that it is sort of like meaning is made individually and it's sort of, it's a personal experience. The author is dead. I guess the authority of the author comes down to us, you know, and uh, I, that's part of why I like, yeah, goes, I guess going back to what I said about the tarot, like the tarot sort of enables you to sort of bring in someone's own, someone's own personal experience and you can sort of like look the more you put into the tarot the more you get out of it you know like you can look at it and you can say oh these cards are kind of dumb these go these kind of funny like you know you can sort of do a surface level read or even try to make something up but i I think that it really benefits getting something interesting and getting something juicy if you just like you remain you sort of yield to it and just let the read take on the form that it needs to take on so
0: i've got a question about Jung you caught yes y- you were talking about the importance of Jung and he's referred to as a psychoanalyst mm. what is the difference between a psychoanalyst and a philosopher or just an, an- analyst or just a psychiatrist where is that boundary?
1: okay um, well a psychoanalyst is essentially a particular I guess form of you know, analyzing someone's psyche um, th- well there's there's many kinds of psychoanalysis like Jungian psychoanalysis is its own kind. While there's also Lacanian, uh, Freudian psychoanalysis, and they've all got, well, I guess Lacanian stems from Freudian, but regardless, they've all sort of branched off in their own direction. In the same way, Jung branched off from Freud's methodology as well.
0: So does that mean simply just a way to see the world or just a lens to see uh, a person's identity or just psychology is that just yeah it's it's
1: essentially it's a means of engaging with people's psyches like a way of interpreting the contents of one's psyche and Mm -hmm. what i guess different forms of psychoanalysis place emphasis on different things for example freud was notoriously obsessed with sex and sexuality and he believed that was like the most fundamental aspect towards psychology while for jung there's more of the sense of like individuation or the self um of, of one becoming oneself and, uh, you know, sort of like the stories that exist in that sense or the this, this, this symbolic world, sorry, that was on that before. But even then, when it comes to tarot, I, I wouldn't even, like, impose a Jungian methodology on a person if you are seeing the world in a certain kind of way, whatever way that might be. We want to try and work within that as much as possible.
0: You know what's interesting? I asked questions about tarot cards and Jungian and symbolism to you before, And something I asked was, well, there is the Jungian archetype or I'm not sure if it's Jungian, but there's definitely the archetype of the overbearing mother, like the mother that won't let the child go out and experience the world. And there's Mm. also the archetype of the tyrannical father. And they're both overbearing, but in a slightly different way. The tyrannical father is usually physically overbearing, physically dominating, abusive, whilst the mother... Um, tends to be more emotionally cautious and emotionally stunts the child. Obviously, they branch off in different ways, but they tend to be quite negative. And I was just asking you, really out of curiosity, I said, well, is there like almost a sexist element to this? So like, you know, the fact that, you know, the father is represented in a certain way and the mother is represented in a certain way. And I thought the response you gave me was quite accurate. And I'm just going to throw this out there and tell me if you know I've misquoted you or I haven't misquoted you. But you said something along the lines: "Well, purely these archetypes, you know, they might be, they very well might be, or they very well, they very well might not be, except they still are archetypes in our society's heads. So whether it is sexist or it's not, the fact that this archetype or this image of femininity or masculinity exists." means that it actually does affect our art and it does affect our understanding of the world and our understanding of our parents and ourselves. And thus, even if it is sexist, it still is worth exploring.
1: Yeah, yeah, I I definitely still agree with that. And in the sense of like, look, this is something that transcends politics. You know, this isn't to diminish the importance of politics or having a critical eye towards, you know, our perceptual lens. But fundamentally, there is a misstep in denying one's perceptual lens. It's kind of like, uh, you know, you can't actually reach a new understanding without working within the sort of the means which your current understanding operates under. And you know what, in a lot of ways, I I think that it's, uh, it's a way to sort of stop ourselves from actually engaging with the deep significance of the stories we're hearing if we deny them or perhaps the fact that we have things that we deny in our stories is why a lot of these things happen unconsciously because the contents of the unconscious if they were so easy for us to come to terms with we likely wouldn't you know sort of relegate them to the unconscious in the first place but the fact that there's you know sort of problematic elements is troublesome things and that might include you know sort of holding beliefs. Uh, at some sort of deep core level that are antithetical to one's own political beliefs or antithetical to something that you want to believe about yourself uh, consciously at the level of, you know, at the egoic level. And when I say ego, like your ego, your self image, if your self image is at conflict with a part of yourself, chances are that you're going to, like I said, relegate this part of yourself to the unconscious. You banish it to the shadows in a sense to try and, you know, sort of keep it out of your view and deny its existence but when you put it in the shadows, all you really do is give it the ability to pull the puppet strings without your detection because you sort of like disable yourself from being able to understand that as a part of yourself. Therefore, you're doomed to be, I guess, held by its, its clutches. So it seems like core to this idea
0: of Jungian psychology or just tarot cards is the power and the importance of subjectivity and almost relishing that. So if, for example, we both pull out the uh, what's another tarot card apart from the tower being struck by lightning? I'll pull one right now. Yeah, cool, let's do that.
1: Uh, the death card, the death so it's card. The classic. Yeah, it's a grim reaper with a scythe, mm-hmm. and he's uh, he's severing this chain. Well, I'm looking at the um, thoth deck, um, designed by uh, Alistair Crowley and painted by Lady Frida Harris. Um, so some decks might portray differently, but I pretty much sure every deck would feature death as a card number 13 of the major arcana, which means just like it doesn't, is not associated with any suit. Um, you know, death is a death is a great one. Cause that's a very universal symbol of the human experience. And mm-hmm. um, I guess in the same, well, to use the example you gave earlier, think of something like the tower that you said, the tower that sort of comes from Western mythology may not have the same connotations to a Asian or to an African person um, based on their sort of cultural or their, their symbolic inheritance. But you know, death is such a universal aspect of the human existence and the human experience that every culture is going to have some kind of mythos and storytelling around death in some way or another you know we need to have stories involving death because we need to understand this thing that we're all going to you know deal with in life right so what becomes interesting though is that death becomes symbolic so you know we see death and it's like oh it means that I'm going to die or someone i care about's going to die Or maybe if you're a spiteful and wishful thinking person, your enemies are going to die. But, um, you know, like death doesn't have to represent a literal human death or the ending of a life, but simply the death of something, something going away. Maybe even a story that you tell yourself dies or a sort of a coping mechanism or a a way of understanding reality dies, but that's a necessary thing to make way for new life.
0: You know, like... Core to the human experience and core to human text, death is so prevalent. And I'm really just thinking about this as I'm listening to you speak. It is so prevalent to our stories. It is almost so prevalent that you cannot have a story without some kind of death. And as you said, it's not just a physical death, whether it's Hamlet, whether it's Star Wars, you know, Anakin fearing the death of... Um, the Pad- uh, Padme or whoever or whether it's Legend of the Galactic Heroes or Cowboy Bebop or it's video games or it's Call of Duty like death is so prevalent to all these stories and I think fundamentally what that means is as humans we are constantly trying to grapple with these stories and these ideas of death because it is such a it, to many people and i would I'd include myself in this it's very frightening and we need to use stories as a way to understand it and i think you're right you know in the west it's portrayed as the grim reaper in hindu mythology it might be i think it's shiva i'm pretty sure it's shiva no it's not it's either shiva or vishnu i need to brush up on my
1: pretty it's yeah, shiva with a dance destruction right
0: uh, yeah okay so it's shiva and then you know, in in other religions, it's you know some, something else. Making space for fate. new
1: new life as well.
0: Yeah, exactly. So th- that's really interesting. And honestly, I think every story really involves death. And this is something I want to throw out to you. That would also mean your idea of subjectivity, which, by the way, I do agree with uh, the idea of subjectivity. You know, what you pull out in the card, for example, the Grim Reaper or sorry, or death, really. I might interpret that as, you know, the death of my career or the death of my basketball skills or the death of my car or, or the death of my best friend or something like that. So it's completely subjective in how I interpret it. But that would also mean you open up the the world to things like, you know, I look at a rock that is bent out of shape and I might immediately grab some meaning from that. And I think we do agree in in the sense that a lot of meaning... Or all meaning is subjective, but that basically opens up the space for like, my book is slightly bent and thus I will have a horrible year, or my pencil is not sharp enough and thus my exam will flunk.
1: Ah, yeah, yeah, I get you, I get you. I'm glad you bring this up. Like, yeah, let's say that. Yeah, my my pencil is my symbol of my of my studious, you know, capabilities of my intelligence of my scholarly prowess, and mm-hmm. it's. And my pencil just broke. This is a bad omen. I'm going to, you know, it's a self-defeating prophecy. Um, I think what's interesting about those kind of ways of thinking, and I guess is that they, they definitely embrace one's own subjectivity, but they're not critical towards it. Because I guess what I'm in advocating doing is turning your eyes inwards, so to speak, and gazing upon and observing the mechanics, not with a cool detachment, with the, you know, you're, you're feeling it, but you're not giving way to it. You're not just sort of unconsciously, you're, 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 you're observing these internal stories and you're, you're seeing how they happen in real time. You're feeling them and you're experiencing what they feel like. You're not necessarily, if anything, like I would say the person who, you know, is extremely sort of, I don't know, like a hypochondriac superstitious person, you know, they're not really critical of their stories. You know, I'm not, while I give a lot of weight to them and, and their validity in terms of subjective meaning making, I don't think that subjective meaning is the be all and end all. Because fundamentally, I mean, outside of the scope of the importance of subjective meaning, we do aim to go beyond ourselves and to change our subjective meaning. We're sort of like creatures that constantly breach the unknown to turn it into the known and find, um, you know, sort of like, I guess, uncover the new, you know? So I, I think that like fundamentally, our subjective meaning-making has a useful extent to which we can adhere to it and to which we can communicate with it and, you know, we should respect it. But at the same time, we that doesn't mean I would advocate, I guess, just mindlessly, you know, I, you know freaking out every impulse that comes from it, if you are sort of prone to that kind of thinking.
0: Well, what's the difference between someone seeing their pencil break mid-test and also you pulling out a tarot card of a... Night pouring water into a cup, which I'm pretty sure is, or it, it might be a page pouring water into a cup, which I'm pretty sure is a tarot card. What's the difference? Because aren't they both symbols of what might come or one's um situation in the
1: world? Yeah, well, they I would say they're both symbols of how one sees the world. Um, yeah, I don't, I, yeah, I don't think it's anything more or less than that, and I think in saying that. You know, just because you see something doesn't mean it's the case, you know, doesn't mean it's the case in material reality, but it does mean it's the case at the unconscious reality and to have your awareness turned towards something in unconscious reality that becomes an object which you can meditate upon and you can self-examine, you know? So like, if you're the person, if you're really, you know, if you're really, I don't know, taking a tarot mindset to the pencil breaking, the pencil breaks and you're like, oh, wow, this is like a tarot reading. This like this, this symbolizes this and this. And you're thinking, okay well this is what I think is happening this is the the unconscious meta-narrative that I am you know unwittingly placing upon this but all you're doing is bringing that into your awareness doesn't mean that you have to accept it as a fact I don't think that tarot cards are, are giving you your sort of destiny in you know cardboard uh, stone tablets, so to speak they're just kind of like telling you what you think is going to happen and in a lot of ways, I think the second a tarot card is uh, sorry a tarot read is over, you can actually put it to bed. You know, like the tarot read showed you what it showed you in that moment. So while I think it's really useful at understanding the self, I I don't think that it means that it's got an objective, you know, lens into the future. And I don't think we should, you know, when I say to have respect for the unconscious mind, I don't, that doesn't mean that you let it walk all over you. Like there's got to be a mutual respect. You have to face it, you know, rather than try to push your unconscious down. doesn't mean you have to elevate it above you. I think you have to try and see it with it at eye level and engage with it in a discussion and communication that's more akin to like a round table. So this,
0: this really reminds me of something that Christians used to do. Uh, I'm pretty sure Thomas Aquinas did this, where he would get the Bible and he would flip it open and he'll go to a random page and he'd point his finger at a random spot on the Bible. And then he'd look at the word. And from that, he would get some sort of meaning. So he'd look at the so he'd open the Bible, flip to a page, point to a spot and go, okay, it points on hope or points on destruction or love or joy. And then from that, he would get some sort of meaning. And that in a way is tarot, isn't it? Like it's opening yourself up to chance and then bringing out of that chance, some sort of symbol
1: or some sort of truth. Oh yeah. Well, that's, that's divination. I mean, that's, that's what they have in common. I guess the biggest difference, at least in what I'm describing, because obviously you can approach tarot in many different ways. Um, and I, I don't necessarily know if my method is, is really that popular. But I, I I do think that they're the same in that we they're both ways of engaging with the symbolic world, and that's the divination. But then it's like what you ascribe the devon- the symbolic world to. So, for example, you know, one in that, in that Christian example, you're sort of immediately going to the Word of God, and you're seeing how the Word of God resonates within you. Um, while tarot, at least for myself, doesn't have – that same divine connotation, but even having said that, I I think that tarot inherently kind of has a history wherein it's due to its association with the occult. There are a lot of you know sort of Christians who would you know think that it's a bad thing and think that it's a the, there may be a satanic element to tarot cards. But I I do believe that what a lot of people understand as the divine and what I understand as you know, the, the depths of one's own consciousness, inclusive of the unconscious are fundamentally the same thing. Um, that's, (laughs) that's also a whole other topic. That's an interesting one too, where you believe the tarot stuff comes from. Um, because a lot of people there who you know, will sort of say it's from the gods. If you know, there's people who are quite very mystic about it. Um, I guess I, I, I am, I'm mystic in a certain sense, but I, I, I think the mysticism is actually fully compatible with like psychological lens of viewing things. At least a Jungian psychological lens, which I don't know if that's very au with the current, you know, sort of, you know, psychiatry climate. But that's that's not really neither here nor there. You know what this reminds me of? This reminds me of uh, Kanye
0: West's lyric. I'm going oh, yeah. to read it out right now. Human beings in a mob. What's a mob to a king? What's a king to a god? What's a god to a non-believer who don't believe in anything? <laughs> Damn. <laughs> Kanye <laughs> Let him know, bro. <laughs> Blast, man. Yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, that, that's int- I'm, yeah. I'm thinking about that in this context. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I, that's a great point. What's a god to a non-believer? I think yeah, the tarot only has as much power as you give it, and as much power as you don't give it. Mm. Um, so you know, I, I think it's great to give it a lot of power in the sense of like, cool. Let's see what's going on. You know, let's let's have a sus. Let's. Uh, I, I treat it like a like a meditation object. Like I said, like I'll have a reading. I'll fully embrace that reading. I'll fully embrace whatever came in that moment, and then I'll say, okay, this just showed me that I feel a certain way. Mm-hmm. It just gave an avenue for certain feelings to come to the surface. Now that those are there, I can engage with them. Doesn't necessarily mean that that is God. And on the other hand, I'm not necessarily. You know, I guess if you if if you give too much weight to your tarot readings you might believe that destiny is set in stone because you sort of deify it. But on the other hand, you can give no, no weight to it and you can be quite atheistic and you can refuse to acknowledge the story that you're inclined to tell. Cause you go, oh that's just a story that I'm saying, which I would say, yeah, it is. But you know, there's value in the fact that you're just telling a story. Like the story is inherently a way for you to understand yourself. So really
0: what these tarot cards are is a mirror. You put the mirror up to yourself and then you pick a few cards. I'm it's usually four, I believe you pick a few cards out. And then from that you get a certain meaning and that meaning is purely subjective and it's purely born from one's conscious or subconscious. And that's really all it is. And once you leave, that's it. And from, it seems like from what you're saying, this experience is purely subjective and it should only be seen as subjective and actually not even be seen as subjective. It sh- we should almost relish in the subjectivity and see this as an avenue to explore our depths or our subconscious in a way that we might not be able to, to normally.
1: Yeah, well, that's that's the value of subjectivity. Subjectivity is sort of an interface for us to understand what's really happening. I think in a lot of ways... The reason we even have an unconscious in the first place is because we make, we, you know, we sort of we make judgments about what we ought to be and what we ought not to be, and it's almost like our very idea that we have things that we should be or things that we shouldn't be stops us from fully acknowledging ourselves. And and you know, even at a more logistically simple level, human beings are pretty complex systems, bro. Like <laughs> you know, it's hard to, in the same way, you can't look at all the files in your computer at the same time. You know, you can your computer, you can only sort of, you know, you can't sort of see all of your memories or all of your, the contents of your mind or your soul or whatever you want to call it at the same time. Like, we're just too deep for that. And I think that naturally the things that do get relegated into the depths uh, are there for us to discover. And that's, hey, I want to talk about archetypal stories. You know, the idea of, you know, Indiana Jones going into, you know, raiding temples for treasures, um, Zelda dungeons, like. You know, India uh, it's not what's her, what's her name. Lara Croft t- raiding, you know, Tomb Raider, the mummy with Brendan Fraser. These kind of stories, man. These these are deep archetypal ones, um, as well. And I think finding the fact that we see finding treasures in depth is such a as such a I guess an image that that resonates with our subjectivity, says something about the way that we actually look at our unconscious experience as well. Like we want to find the stuff, and I think that's why people are drawn to terror. It's definitely why I'm drawn to it. I, I know that much. So what's another archetypical
0: story that seems to permeate our culture, but we just don't really see it as anything other than the story? So you're talking about the idea of entering some dangerous place, overcoming the obstacles and at the very end, gleaming some gem of truth from that experience. Is there any other archetype that you can think of which seems to permeate our pop culture, which we don't really think of?
1: Well, they're all, they're all things we don't necessarily think of unless you're into this kind of stuff and you're always thinking about it. Um, but even then, like the the stories themselves hide ways that information is revealed to us. Like another great one is the idea of the trickster and the virtue of the trickster, because what is a trickster? But like, you know, you think of a trickster is someone who presents wisdom to you in a form that forces you to really wrestle with it they're telling you something that's hard for you to understand in a way that's hard to understand, but that forces you to try and understand it. Like if let's take a look at, um, you know, let's say for example, the, the Cheshire cat from Alice in Wonderland, you know, sort of like he's a trickster figure and he seems scary and he seems like he's uh, you know, sort of malevolent, but fundamentally, like he, he gives Alice kind of wisdom about the world she's entering. Um, the trickster archetype, like, corresponds in a lot of, a lot of people correspond with a fool in the tarot cards. And, you know, we might even see it in our dreams, like some kind of, like, you know, sort of jester or some, someone who sort of, like, might even be teasing us or mocking us, but in a way that they're fundamentally trying to show us something that we need to know. But we almost need the, uh, the tension caused by this kind of mocking or confusing delivery to actually understand what they're saying. So the reason why that one's a tricky one for us to appreciate is let's take a look at, okay, who's a person that, you know, sort of makes who shows someone something about themselves that they don't want to see, but in a way that's unwholesome, we could say like, let's say like a bully, for example, right? Like, particularly among kids, because bullying kind of like, you can naturally see how it happens. Like, yeah, obviously, like it's mean spirited in a lot of cases, and it's malevolent. But sometimes, you know, some kids are going to like naturally attract bullying. And now this isn't me making a case for bullying, right? I'm not saying that bullying is a good thing. But if anything, I'm saying that because bullying is like a bad manifestation of the trickster archetype, we are often inclined to throw out the baby with the bathwater. But, you know, we, we love tricksters. We love, you know, sort of like I think of people like um, people who sort of like think of the whole the, the punk rock movement. You know, these are sort of these are tricksters, right? They're really savagely intelligent people with social criticism. And it's manifesting as like anger, but there's they present their They'd present what they knew in like these sort of clever ways or these tricky ways or these sort of satirical kind of ways. Um, Talking to satire, here's a classic one, Jonathan Swift's A A Modest Proposal, you know. Um, He sort of says, okay, solution to poverty Mm -hmm. is that we we eat poor children. You know, it's like, oh, that makes a lot of sense. But, you know, obviously he's not really saying that. Like it makes sense at a certain level. We intuitively know it's wrong. Like that's the virtue of a trickster and it often manifests in art, and we often see it in our own psyches. But because of the fact that real life tricksters are upsetting in a lot of ways. Like, we, you think of things like, like like bullies. Should I make that clear that I'm not advocating bullying? <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like, the, that, that's kind of like a, a negative manifestation of something that happens very naturally, and, and that we can also lose sight of the value of that, because of it.
0: You know, that Jonathan Swift's idea of we should eat poor children, was obviously satire and the idea was to mock the English indifference at the suffering of the Irish people. Some English people or some English politicians, apparently from what I heard, actually saw that as a method to escape poverty. And that's, I guess, really the power of the trickster to take the social norm and then to flip it, which is also why we love the Joker. And actually, I would say the Joker has more fans than the Batman. Maybe that's because of Heath Ledger's just excellent portrayal, but the Joker seems to take the truth and then force you to look at it at another angle and immediately the truth no longer seems that true. And I think that's a really powerful archetype that seems to permeate a lot of uh, places. And I would even say, you know, Zhuanzi, the Chinese or the Taoist, is in a way the tricks the archetype because he takes the truth and then he just manipulates it slightly, which I think there's a lot of importance in actually that that tricks the archetype. Um, here's another archetype that I've actually seen quite a lot, and you know, before you were saying that, you know, with these archetypes, we should try to remove our political or social uh, insights or inclinations, not not because our political insights are wrong but simply just to acknowledge them and then you know from there we can if we want try to change it or try to keep it the same but i see the archetype and honestly this might just show my subjectivity no this definitely shows my subjectivity but the archetype of the beautiful the beautiful girl who's also very dangerous because of her beauty so whether it's mermaids or whether it's medusa or whether it's even the japanese ghost a lot of them are female And they tend to have disheveled hair, uh, long disheveled hair. So the long hair represents youth. And at the same time, the disheveled hair, you could say, represents a lack of conformity or lack of social cohesion because the hair isn't plaited in a certain socially accepted way. And this idea of the very powerful and beautiful woman, and you could say in the 21st century, it's the femme fatale. That's really what it is. This archetype exists and whether, you know, we can look at this from a, you know, Judah Butler Judah Butler, or a feminist or a social criticism method, fundamentally, this archetype exists and it still exists in our media and it still exists throughout history.
1: Yeah, no, I, I, I yeah, it's, it's interesting because like, that's a, that's a great example of something that's very politically loaded, right? Like we see the modern femme fatale archetype, like you're saying, as something that, is, you know, it does have political, it does have like a political kind of um, connotation to it uh, in how it's presented or how, you know, this, these, how we're representing women, what, what, what social judgments are we placing upon the idea of a, of a powerful lady. Um, But I think the thing is, we have to understand that, you know, despite political theory, sort of, I guess, critique of like the male gaze or orienting things towards a male audience. A lot of the Femme Fatale's power comes from the power she has over men. She does have this kind of seductive aspect to her that sort of circumvents uh, you know, male rationality. And I think, you know, that's an uncomfortable fact if you want to make a political statement one way or the other. Um personally I'm just interested in what I think is true. So I, I don't really care about the implications beyond that. But I, I do think that from that perspective that, or at least no, the importance of understanding the political factor that comes into things is that they can actually stop us from interpreting what the symbols mean to us at a more like fundamental level. Um, if we're concerned with things for their social utility or social function, because fundamentally this is like a psychological function that I don't know, supersedes and I would say even a lot of ways outranks our kind of conscious judgments you know
0: so do you think the tarot cards need to be updated with our ever-changing world do you think there needs to be a tarot card with a laptop or a tarot card with a mobile phone or a tarot card with twitter or tiktok do you think these (laughs) archetypes need to evolve because if they are supposed to be representative of our era and representative of our collective consciousness well i think there is space for the idea of the internet or the idea of Twitter or TikTok and stuff like that. So do you think in a hundred years or in 10 years or in five years, we will release a new set of tarot cards, which slowly become more and more accepted with, for example, the internet streamer as an archetype or the, what's another internet archetype? The uh, internet celebrity.
1: Hmm. It's a good question. I would say that in a lot of ways, our modern archetypes just age old mythology manifesting in a digital world. Like, you know, we want to talk about the idea of the uh, the beautiful yet uh, seductive, dangerous femme fatale. Um, she has quite a lot in common with like the modern, I don't know, you could say like the ego the archetype, you know, like <laughs> what's the difference between those two things? The idea of like this, uh, you know, young, beautiful woman with like a lot of like social influence and a lot of power on her sort of, you know, over her audience and a lot of sort of like, you know, her male audience, particularly. Um, there is sort of like this uh, femme fatale or this siren singing her sweet song connotation to that. Um, and even, even to the female audience, even that sense of like seeing that as an empowering thing as a girl is like understanding the value that archetypes have in like a broader socio-sexual context, you know, um, like there is this sort of, you know, the archetypes exist in, in a web. Like we don't just live in archetypes in our own heads, but we understand, oh, when I resonate with this archetype, what does this do for me? And, you know, that's why I say the femme fatale as a sign of female liberation, that's politics trying to sort of redeem a, an archetype that's been in a lot of ways created through the imaginations of men. But simultaneously, like, there's a lot of, like, you know, things that, you know, men would consider to empower themselves as well. There's typically things they think would, you know, be impressive to women as well, right? So it goes both ways. And I'm not really making any political statement here. I'm just kind of, like, identifying what I, what I think is the case. And I, I do believe that a lot of our understandings of archetypes um, are sort of co-informed by, you could say, gender relationships.
0: Man, This is just so, I just find this stuff also interesting. And the fact that we can look at some images on a card, on cardboard and immediately come to some, some conclusion of, you know, where we are in the world or what this means about my relationship with X, Y, and Z. I just find this so fascinating. And fundamentally, this is the point of tarot cards. It's basically the idea of putting a mirror up in front of one's, personality or one's ego especially one's ego and from that drawing out certain truths and sort of certain ideas which we can use to then better understand our world because really the fundamental idea of Jung and it seems like the fundamental idea of tarot cards is to grapple with our subconscious and if we can grapple with our subconscious or come to better integrate our subconscious we can live a better life. And that seems to be the main idea of Jung, whether it's integrating our shadow, not really getting rid of our shadow, but really seeing what our fears and insecurities are and how it manifests in the world and then sort of integrating that into our own personality. This seems to be the case in tarot. And in a way, it seems to be holding a mirror up for ourselves so we can peer into the mirror or as Nietzsche would say, peer into the abyss and let the abyss peer into us and then from that exchange, getting some
1: sort of knowledge from that. Beautifully said, man. It's really <laughs> cool. yeah. It's really cool. I, I I think that yeah, there's that 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 inherent value in I don't know, the unknown is I think that's an eternal thing. And you know, tarot cards, fundamentally they're just one of many ways mm. to do that. Um, but I think they're something that really works well if you have like people around you that are also like-minded in that way because that's the other thing too i i like helping people out and facilitating doing reads but i i find i really get the most out of it when i'm doing reads with multiple people who mm-hmm. all have an appreciation for like the i guess the gravity of of symbolic understanding and you know mm-hmm. if you get at least a few people there who understand symbolism and you're doing tarot reads for each other then you know that others can help you sort of I guess, divinate the hidden meanings in the tarot cards. And once you sort of say things, they're going to be able to riff off of you and help you uh, contextualize what's coming up and contextualize it as sort of like a communication from the unconscious. Mm -hmm. So one last question before we wrap
0: this up. Is there one tarot card in particular that you draw a lot of symbolism from? And obviously that would reflect your subconscious, but is there one card in particular that stands out and that you really like? Um, one, you know, I've only done this a few times and I think every time it was with you, but one that comes to mind is the wizard holding the staff. Ooh, the hermit. Yeah, he's good. I he's love good. that card. Or the, yeah, the page pouring the water into the chalice. I think a lot of times this these symbols stand out to me. So is there a symbol in particular that resonates with you?
1: I think the tower has to be my favorite one across decks too. I always find the tower really fascinating. Um, It's something that seems to like apply to this, you know, like I guess from the story of Babel, it's the hubris of like humanity. Um, But at the same time, it seems to occur so frequently within each individual person as well. And I find that every time I see a tower card, there's always something that could be seen as a tower. Like we're always building structures, and then those structures are always collapsing and making way for new structures. And in a sense, like we we shouldn't even necessarily be in this state of lament or feel like we've done the wrong thing by having a tower fall down. It's like if anything, that's just the part of the process of of life. I guess what I really like about that is that it really it makes me think about the grand scheme of like our I don't know our existences and just how how, how sort of deeply creative we are and how I don't know how much human energy there is flowing around just the fact that it must fall to making way for the new I think it's, it's always a very exciting thing yeah
0: absolutely and if we look at the bible story of the tower of babel well humanity continues and life continues despite the fact that this tower fell down despite the fact that this tower represented insight and wisdom well humanity has survived since right so you know whether or not the tower stands or falls i think you know humanity will continue and i think i'll leave it on one last symbol which i just love and a lot of times in the west we think about greek mythology and by the way greek mythology mm, it's just beautiful There's so much symbolism so much color in it but hindu mythology man that stuff just hits so hard and i love hindu mythology and there's one story which, in particular, which I just love. And honestly, every time I come across it or I have the chance to tell this to people, I do. And really my like 11, year 12 English classes have just become like philosophy classes. And one thing I love is the idea of Shiva. And we touched upon this previously, the idea of Shiva, you know, dancing uh, as the world burns. And then from this dance, it is almost a celebration of death, but also a celebration of the rebirth that follows afterwards. And just symbolically and as an archetype, I just find this so mesmerizing and just there's so much beauty and weight in it. So right on, man. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. I feel the same way, man. That's really cool. Um, it's, it's, it resonates a lot with what I, what I dig about the tower, you know? Mm. Um Yeah. Totally, totally feel you on that one. Hell yeah, that's what we're talking about. All right,
0: Geo, uh, is there anything you want to plug before we call this? Because, by the way, huge fan of your music. I'm not even. I'm not even messing around when I say like, I've told you this already on Zoom. During the five minutes before we start the lesson, I. Forced them to listen to your music. I just want to plug your hip hop album, which is coming out, Pyramid Mission. Correct me if I'm wrong. And I mean, I've listened to it previously in my car, um, in this secluded area, just with the bass at a maximum 100%. And that stuff, oh my god! The last song in particular, Pyramid Mission, it's like being in a rave, and then it's like being in a vipassana meditation, <laughs> and then it's like coming out on the other side. So, yo, <laughs> plug your stuff. Let people know what you're doing.
1: And, <laughs> I think you've uh, already share you're the hearing. good word. <laughs> you've you plugged it better than I can. But hey, man, yeah, look, it's the band. We're called Pyramid Mission, and the album's gonna be called Spit in the Eye um that album's coming out soon so you know stay ch- po- toasted for that stay toasted what the hell stay posted <laughs> for that it'll really it'll really toast your bread you know and um, the first song's called tower down in reference to the towers that's right i'm uh, you know writing songs about um about tarot cards so that's that's always exciting if you've made it an hour into this podcast you probably would be a big fan so check it out bro it's good <laughs> it's juicy it's gonna be juicy hey last question before we end this yes. out of
0: from zero to ten how much would your life suck if Jung never lived? <laughs> man,
1: without, without, without Jung, bro, Carl Jung, I'd be nothing. Zero. It'd be a, it'd be a zero. Well, 10 out of 10 suckage, zero out of 10 life.
0: <laughs> All right, bro. We'll, we'll cap it there.
1: Thank you for doing this. Uh, thank okay.
0: you for enlightening me. Man, there's a lot of stuff I, I can grab from this. So thank you. Yo, it's so been much. a
1: juicy chat, man. Thanks for having me on. Hell yeah talk soon. Thank you for tuning in to Safety Last with Stanley Ching. If you enjoyed this then please leave a rating or a comment. I hope you're leaving with a new idea and make sure to follow us on Instagram, Facebook and other places that can be found in the description.